that was a breaking point because before my family system, we don't express pain. We don't Mm. express emotion. You know, Mm. if you go to a lot of, well, okay, Chinese American churches, we will worship the Lord and barely move our lips, not dance, not move, not sway. We will barely even clap because we don't know how to clap on the two four. And welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American Pacific Islander women on our ethnic journey and leadership. I am your host, Vivian Mabuni, and we are so glad you're here. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Someday is Here. This week's guest is Nicole Lim, and she is amazing. At least twice during our conversation, I think I instruct you as listeners to just stop, rewind, and re-listen to something that she shares. And there's just, this conversation is loaded with so many nuggets, important and needed information for all of us. Nicole, as you will hear, is not only a very articulate and gifted communicator, but she's also an educator and she's a consultant in leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. So she blends so many beautiful strengths together. And she's also the founder and international director of Freely and Hope. We talk about her nonprofit organization and the clear call to help equip survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through holistic education, leadership development, and storytelling platforms. Nicole is the author of Liberation Is Here, Women Uncovering Hope in a Broken World. And uh, we talk about her book, her work, uh, her journey as an Asian American woman leader. And this conversation is so great. So pull out a pen and paper, take some notes. I know you are going to be so encouraged and you will learn so much from our conversation. So without further ado, here's Nicole. All right, everyone, welcome back to Some Days Here, and I'm thrilled to introduce to you a new friend, Nicole Lim, and we are going to have a conversation about all the things, because as you heard in the introduction, Nicole is a photographer, an activist, um, well-traveled, and has a really great perspective on how big the world is and how small the world is, and I'm so excited about our conversation. So welcome, Nicole, to Some Days Here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. My goodness. Well, before we jump down, we realized we have a mutual friend, Angie Hong. We both think the world of Angie. Yeah, Yeah, and Angie was um, on the podcast earlier in a previous season, and she's just so amazing. So I feel like if we're one degree separated that way, I already like you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Angie's a powerhouse for sure. So any friend of Angie's is a friend of mine. Okay. Well, now now we've got to reconnect in real life eventually. But Nicole, I'm so glad that you were here. I I received a copy of your book, Liberation is Here. And as soon as I saw it, I immediately sent a photo to the executive producer, Chantel, and I said, we need Nicole on the podcast. And she said, yes. And so I'm thrilled that it all worked out. I got to start the book and still working my way through it, but was so encouraged by it. But we'll talk more about the content of the book, but I would love for our listeners to hear just some of your background in your ethnic journey. Like just what was it like for you growing up? Tell us some of your history. Yeah, so I am third-generation Chinese-American, born and raised in the Bay Area, California, the best place to be, I think. Um, And I think growing up, I was very aware of my Asian-American-ness. We grew up in a a predominantly Asian-American church, and so I was surrounded by Asian-Americans. I was surrounded by um, leaders that were Asian-American, and so that's just really all I saw. And then when I started doing international development work as a filmmaker and photographer, that's when I started noticing, oh, 
I am the only one woman. And then I am mm. the only Asian American in, in this context a lot of times. And uh, through my work as a photographer, I started speaking more on public platforms. And again, I found I was really alone in my perspective. And as I delved into, as I transitioned my work from international photographer, filmmaker into now nonprofit management and starting an organization that equips survivors of sexual violence in Kenya and Zambia, that's when I started really valuing more so my history and background and my um, ancestral lineage as an Asian American, mm. because I felt that everything that I was doing was because the ancestors had uh, somehow given me the bloodline, the strength, the mm. courage, and the compassion to do what it is that I do now. And just now is where I'm able to speak more, I think, on that connection, because um, my work for the past 10 years of working in this organization and, and uh, building this organization, um, I think, is because of the ancestral lineage that allowed me to do so. So, wow. yeah, that's kind of my history. I love that. Can you break that down a little bit more? Like when you talk about that, like what specifically comes to mind with this ancestral lineage, like in your bloodline, um, like explore that with us a little bit, what you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, you know, growing up, it's every parent's dream for their child to achieve success. Right. And mm -hmm. especially uh, for my family system, uh, my grandparents on both sides uh, escaped communist China. My mm -hmm. grandfather actually was blacklisted for being a journalist in communist China. He got a tip from um, a friend who was a communist soldier and was like, hey, you're on the blacklist. You better flee immediately. So he fled to wow. Hong Kong that night, eventually went over to Canada, came down to San Francisco where he started um, a church. And so that story is always like, hmm, that's interesting that you mm -hmm. know we had to flee from something in order to find new life. Therefore, the responsibility on us as the lineage is mm -hmm. we fled war, famine, disease, and poverty so that you can find um, a new life for yourself. Mm. And so for me, if being third generation, I feel like this is my observation, that the first generation is what escaped the poverty and war. Mm -hmm. Second generation is what was forced into uh, becoming a doctor, a lawyer, or a nurse, or an acupuncturist so that they can <laughs> bring their family out of the poverty from the, that they escaped from. Mm. And then the third generation, we're kind of just like trying to figure out how to be American, but still connect with our grandparents because they're still living mm -hmm. and trying to like war within these worlds that we're in. At the same time, we're also observing the success of our parents because they did become the doctors and lawyers and acupuncturists and whatever it is. In, in my case, my father became a dentist, right? Mm -hmm. So like I'm living in the success of my parents, yet still hearing the stories of my grandparents. Mm. And so I, as a third generation, am, am trying to reconcile. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for myself to hear to hear the stories about the poverty from whence we came, to mm -hmm. live into the success that my parents built for me so that I can also achieve success, mm. but I'm still warring and reconciling with what is my role in this world, considering there's still a lot of poverty, violence, and famine and disease, right? Right. And so in that struggle is what led me into documentary filmmaking, because I mm. knew that there was a different story that needs to be told. The media was always showing pictures of women of color, particularly uh, Black women, African women, as women who were complicit in their own suffering, and they were just kind of <laughs> wallowing in the despair. And I knew from my own story, in, in terms of my ancestral lineage and the, the stories that I've heard from my grandparents, that they mm -hmm. were not wallowing in their own suffering. Mm -hmm. They were fighting against. They were doing what they could. They were providing yeah. for their family. They were um, finding joy even in the midst of pain. And mm. so because I knew that of my own lineage, I knew that there must have there must be a larger story and experience that's not being told in the mainstream media. And mm. so that's what actually led me into photography and filmmaking because I wanted to be a part of ushering this new story and a new uh, a new uh, perspective of mm -hmm. what it looks like to be female and what it looks like to be a woman of color. Mm. And I felt like that was my role um, as a third generation Chinese American. That is beautiful. I don't know if you're familiar with Esther Haven's photography work. She's a good friend of mine. And I was really challenged by her view, which I'm hearing the same um, passion in your voice as well. But the importance of, of in photography, of, of the story, of making sure that the dignity of the subjects was you know, absolutely documented with there's permission to share, like all of that is a very intentional uh, decision. 
And she, you know, so I, I think that because perception is reality, we go along with the storylines of what we're fed, really. Like there's no connection point except for what is being presented. So the, the, exactly. uh, the viewpoint of people's experiences and even the lack of representation that you're discussing, you know, in media, it leaves most people believing that all Asians are the right. sidekick and kind of socially awkward or really good at math, you know, like those kinds of perceptions where I think expanding the story and being able to bring dignity to real people and real stories is a very needed and honorable work. So mm-hmm. I, I love what you're talking about in our, just the direction that you are going. Yeah. Yeah. And on that too, we need more of those storytellers because we will only see the world from the perspective of how we tell those stories. So I think it's really imperative, especially for Asian Americans to tell their own story and to ensure that whatever art or whatever pieces they put out into the world, that it is very specific to their own perspective because we don't get enough of that Asian American perspective. And so if we don't do that, then we're only going to see the world through the white gaze. And yes. that's where we have to shift that and expand the perspective of what the world could look like. I I love that. 100% behind that. So for you growing up, you were in Northern California, you know, very, you know, obviously a large Asian community that you grew up in. Um, did you experience growing up or was it more like when you were in more of these white spaces, but did you ever experience a time when you felt embarrassment or pain um, being, you know, Asian American, Chinese American? Um, have you experienced points of pain in your journey? Um, what are, are, and if so, what's that been like? Yeah, I think growing up, I, I've always been very uh, clear of who I was. And um, I think that's just a tribute to my parents and ensuring that the values and the um, affirmation that they gave me was um, very consistent. Um, growing up, I actually didn't go to public school very um, long. I was only in public school until third grade, and then I was homeschooled. So mm. with that, again, my culture and my system and my family system was all still surrounded by more of my church community and my <laughs> family system. So again, that like Asian American structure. And then with that, I think as I went into university, that's when it's like, okay, like here I am in the world of, of this predominantly, I went to a private uh, Catholic university, so predominantly white. And so I tried my best to identify with the Asian American community, but actually there in the Asian American community, it was so, we are Asians and we are Asians alone. And I was like, is that it? You know, like, is that it that that we can only identify with each other? And so interestingly, I found sisterhood in the African community at my university. And that's what actually expanded my worldview into what is this world beyond Asian American life? Because that's Mm -hmm. all I knew before. Mm. And so that's what kind of um, brought in my perspective of what my filmmaking work could go into beyond what I knew. Mm. Um, And so that's when I started venturing into doing more international global work um, in the African continent, doing more work just everywhere, um, working for different international agencies to continue to broaden my perspective. I think the pain point for me was when I was in the work, um, when I had delved into the work of uh, transitioning from being a photographer to now starting a nonprofit with survivors of sexual violence, where I experienced pain most was in the stories that I had never before experienced. Mm. And so there's this, there was a, 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 a kind of a separation of, oh my God, the, the pain and the experiences that you've suffered through is beyond anything anything that I could even wrap my head around because my experiences were so different. Mm. And so the pain point for me was recognizing that that story that I was hearing overseas, that story that I was hearing, even I did some work in Skid Row as well, like hearing Mm. those stories that were so different than mine, that story could have easily been mine. Had Mm. my grandparents never immigrated, had my parents wanted a boy as their first child, Mm. had my parents faced racial discrimination and couldn't get a job, Wow. Have you grown up on the other side of the freeway? You know what I'm saying? Especially living mm-hmm. in Richmond. It's like just that other side of the freeway. That's the hood, you know? And so right. realizing that those stories could have easily been mine was 
a huge pain point because I then, again, back to this reconciliation of what do I do now? How do Mm -hmm. I reconcile what I have understood to be true to now what is true for someone else? And Mm -hmm. what is my role in mending the brokenness of the world? Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. It's, I think it's hard to open up our hearts to those kinds of stories because um, it, the horror of it all is so uh, unbelievable. And yet it's the lived experience of millions. And so I guess I'm curious, how do you maintain um, not only composure, but how do you maintain a, a soft heart in the midst? I mean, how do you keep from hardening your heart from actually feeling those feelings while pushing through with this hope of a better future for these women. I mean, I'm curious how you do that. That just, to me, the tasting and experiencing the reality of some of these stories is just, it's hard to not just numb out or turn away, look away. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Ignorance is bliss, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's so much easier to like be, hear the stories and be like, okay, great. And that's actually what my work was as a photographer. You mm-hmm. go into these places and I was in home after home after home and country after country working in the international agencies that I used to work for. And you go in, you hear these horrific stories and then you leave. Mm-hmm. Then you do it again tomorrow and you keep doing it again. And you can choose, do I capture the picture, capture the story as is, Mm -hmm. or do I capture the story and paint it in a way that's like happier? You know, there's also that, like what we're talking about earlier, like painting dignity. There's a difference between empowerment and exploitation and ensuring that the story is told in the way that the storyteller wants it told, right? So again, our gaze really Mm. depends on, are we trying to shift the suffering into this joyful, happy uh, image that the international agency hired me for, right? right? So again, there's this huge dilemma of how do we tell a story that is true to the suffering, but mm. still embodies dignity and tells a different type of story. And so as I was doing um, this work of coming and going and coming and going, I kept hearing story after story of survivors of sexual violence, mm-hmm. many of them who all they wanted was to pursue an education. Yeah. And because of limitations of poverty, because of family systems, because they were born a girl, uh, they couldn't achieve that education. And so they would be forced to work the streets, often in prostitution, often as house girls, often just hustling to feed their younger siblings. Um, And so that made them more vulnerable to to sexual violence. And so when I went into this work as a photographer, actually, my heart had to be hard because I could not engage in all, engage in all of these stories because I would leave that home and go to another home and I would yeah. leave it again and I would go to another home. And so after years of doing that is when I realized that what it, again, my, what is my role in this story? Either I could capture it and just tell the story and allow this organization to tell the story the way they want to based on my image, or I can mm-hmm. choose to enter into the story of brokenness, enter into the story of suffering and be a part of helping these people create a new story based on what they want, not based on yes. what the international agency wants, right? So it was an invitation. I felt the survivors really inviting me into their story that was so much bigger than my own. Mm. That was a breaking point because before... My family system, we don't express pain. We don't Mm. express emotion. You Mm. know, if you go to a lot of, well, okay, Chinese American churches, we will worship the Lord and barely move our lips, not dance, (laughs) not move, not sway. We will barely even clap because we don't know how to clap on the two, four. (laughs) Right? So because of that, like, we don't know. We don't know how to express. And we actually Mm. are, and I've been in my family system, actually, uh, criticized for expression. Mm. As a child, I expressed a lot through anger and through just like this rambunctious character. I grew up with Mm -hmm. boy cousins. So I was, they were always jumping off the couches. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna jump off the couches too. And my aunties (laughs) would be like, Nicole, that's not ladylike. So again, it's like, Nicole, that's not ladylike. You can't dress like that. You can't Mm -hmm. jump off the couches Mm -hmm. like that. You can't wear your hair like that. You can't Mm -hmm. wear your, you can't wear boy shorts like that. Like there's so many things that you cannot do. And especially you cannot express anger. And Mm -hmm. so I grew up believing because I couldn't express anger, that anger was a deadly sin. 
Mm. And because I was not allowed to express this anger, I didn't know how to express any other emotion. And so everything from anger to joy, to sorrow, to grief, to happiness was suppressed because Mm. I didn't know how. And so entering into the suffering of the world in community with survivors of sexual violence is what forced my heart to actually be softened and and to use this metaphor that I actually lay out in my book of my heart to be expanded instead Mm -hmm. of being closed off and protected and afraid of what I didn't know, instead to allow it to be expanded into something that's so much more beautiful and realizing that the experiences and the emotions of anger, suffering, pain, and joy are all come together You can't express anger without expressing happiness. You can't express pain without expressing joy and grief and despair and hope and all of those things. Like Mm. all of the the, those uh, uh, expressions of an emotions actually expand our heart's capacity to then find love. And that's what my work with survivors of sexual violence really called me into. I love that. I think one of the most um, impactful books that I read. Well. There are a lot of very impactful books, but the um, uh, when helping hurts book mm-hmm. about yep. you know a lot of a lot of times nonprofits, churches, organizations go in with the savior mentality to we're going to help those people and it's one up and it's very much a sense of um, the what you describe like we can leave you know we can go back into the safety of our our home and we're here to help them rather than re- recognizing that all of us, our lives are enriched and deepened and the relationships um, we have as much to gain, if not more by entering in. And the, the resourcing isn't a one direction, one way direction. And I think that that's, you know, I, I think it's a, a very big change that needs to be communicated more and more. And so the reciprocity, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what you said earlier, I think of the communities knowing what they need. It's not necessarily the organization coming in going, oh, I think we need to put a well here, <laughs> you know, and it's like, this may not work in this community. And so what does the community actually need and what does it look like to, you know, allow, make way for young girls and young women to have access to education, which will then elevate the entire community, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. So powerful. Wow. Okay. So I'm curious as an Asian American woman doing a lot of work in African countries, Kenya, and where was the other country? Zambia. Zambia. How was that for you experiencing it as an Asian American woman? Did you, did you feel yourself um, accepted because of how you looked more or, I mean, what was that like for you in your time, in your times there visiting? Yeah, so things have changed a lot. I've been working in Kenya and Zambia for the past 10 years. And Mm. oh my God, with trade, with roads being built, with apartment complexes going up, like things have really shifted. 10 years ago, I was definitely the anomaly. There were very few Chinese, Mm -hmm. um, no Chinese Americans, actually. So (laughs) that, um, because there were no brown people, um, the the assimilation is that the association is that you're white. So a lot of times, especially with my accent, it's very clear that I'm American, uh, mm-hmm. whether I'd like to you know admit it or not, um, <laughs> because they see me as light skin and they hear my accent automatically. I become white, and mm. so in the beginning of the work, that whiteness was attributed to wealth. Mm. So because of that, that put me at risk, especially being a woman, of being targeted for, uh, from, well, mostly from strangers for pickpocketing and violence and whatever. Uh, but when it came to inside my community, that perception grew into, uh, because you are white and wealthy, you are withholding things from me. Wow. And so that became difficult as well to try to, you know, help help our community understand that there are resources and they're limited based on what I was getting from donations for our nonprofit. And mm-hmm. we needed to share those resources. It doesn't mean that you get some and then you get some based mm-hmm. on what I want. It's based mm-hmm. on what the organization needs. And so that perception was really difficult because a lot of, especially in Kenya, international agencies come in with tons of money and they're mm-hmm. used to the nonprofit workers getting most of it. 
That's what's happening uh, in Kenya. And so because of that perception, that was really hard to, um, in the beginning, to really articulate. And so what helped to mend that was in teaching them about my culture, teaching them about the nuances of of my culture that's different from whiteness, Mm -hmm. um, helping them see that, yes, you might think that I look white just because I'm not Black at the same time my culture is a lot different. In fact, there's a lot more similarities than you might Mm -hmm. realize. And Mm -hmm. so many similarities in terms of the communal aspect and like sitting and communing and talking story and eating together. Like those are the things that um, were really um, inherent to my culture, just as it's inherent to their culture. Mm -hmm. And so helping them see that through my presence took and is still taking years and years to develop. Mm. Now, um, now that we're 10 years established and globalization has really done its work in, in Kenya and Zambia, the Chinese are coming in and doing um, having deals with the, the uh, government and they're coming in to build roads and to build apartment complexes. And so there's a lot of um, animosity now against Chinese because they're coming in to take lo- local labor. And a lot of these Chinese managers are not supportive of the local community. Uh, what, what we've heard, there's been a couple uh, videos leaked in different corporations of Chinese managers calling um, the local people just really derogatory names and treating them very badly. And so that's circulating. Um, wow. And then when the pandemic hit, mm. because coronavirus started in China, uh, there, it became physically violent. And so during wow. that time, actually, my staff told me, don't come back until this thing blows over. So unfortunately, I haven't been back all year because we didn't realize that it would you know, escalate to this point. Um, but my mm. staff started to see like there was an increased anti-Chinese sentiment, even more so than before. So things wow. have really changed in the past 10 years. Mm. You know, that's fascinating because I do think I've, I've spent some time in Rwanda um, and in the, the last time, which was a, over, a little over a year ago, we stayed in a, a hotel that was clearly built by Chinese because my time in China, you know, it was like, it oh, was yeah. the same. You can tell. It's the, the tile cement, floors. the tile floors, the, the, the smell. toilet paper, the smell. <laughs> it was just like, and the way the air conditioner worked, you know, it was just like, oh my okay, God. Seriously. It's this wet. Is a Chi- yes. This is a Chinese hotel. And, and, and later, I think I opened up one of the you know, the wardrobes or whatever and saw the Chinese characters and thought, wow, we're talking, it's a whole different thing. And so in the capital, in Kigali, um, the Rwandan women that I knew said, you know, there are increasing numbers of Chinese that are coming over. And so it was, so what you're talking about is really interesting because the perception is changing and the global. It's totally changing. Right. And like, actually in Kenya was the first time that I was stopped by the police. Like, I've never been stopped by the police in America before. Wow. Um, but in Kenya, I was because they're checking documents for all the Chinese to ensure that they're they're there for, um, for, for the right reasons. Hmm. Um, we're also, yeah, we're hearing a lot of different stories of what's happening in terms of the government and Chinese people. And so it's hard to know what's truth, but it's, it's become really um, difficult to maneuver being hmm. Chinese in, in African context now. Wow. Wow. So I'm I'm thinking there are a lot of layers there, Nicole, because you're not from mainland China, and yet your ethnic heritage is Chinese. So there's this this in betweenness that I think is true of Asian Americans. Like we we're kind of third culture in that way. Like we go to Asia and we don't necessarily fit in, but here we don't necessarily always fit in either. And now in Africa, there's the misunderstanding, mis mm-hmm. being mis mistyped, or I don't know if the word just misunderstood, misrepresented somehow and what that means for your work. Wow. Yeah. This episode's Did You Know may be triggering for some as it contains information related to sexual violence. Please be advised and aware of resources that may be of help to you. Did you know that there are memorial statues of the comfort women all over the world, including different parts of the United States? A couple of them are located here in California, where I'm recording this podcast, both in San Francisco and Glendale. To give some background, comfort women were women and children forced into sex slavery by the Japanese Empire in the 1930s and through World War II. Most of these 400,000 
women, and children were of Korean descent and were either recruited under false advertising or violently removed and forced to live and work in horrible, unfathomable conditions. These women lived and worked in quote-unquote comfort stations, which were sponsored by the Japanese government and were horrendous rape camps. These camps were supposed to raise the morale of Japanese soldiers as a, quote, strategy of war, end quote, and to ironically keep them from hurting other women. While the, vo- while the war eventually ended, the practice of violently using women for imperialistic gain did not. And while these comfort stations may no longer be standing, the immense pain carries on for generations. To this day, there are protests and demands for redress and reparations against the Japanese government. In 2015, they agreed to pay 1 billion yen, approximately $8.3 million, to support surviving comfort women. But it was unclear that the money would go directly to survivors. Activists, including survivors, demanded more. They demanded sincere apologies for the stripping of their basic human rights. They also advocated and pushed for the, his- for the history of comfort women to be taught in schools, including U.S. schools, in hopes to keep history from repeating itself and to bring awareness to the ways in which trafficking is still rampant today. In the past few years, the Japanese government entities have continued to sever ties with various locations that have installed memorials, including Osaka's sister city, San Francisco. In California, organizations such as the Nikki for Civil Rights and Redress, NCRR, and the Comfort Women Justice Coalition, CWJC, amongst others, have continued to fight for the remembrance of these stories, for the inherent dignity and strength these women had, and for the strength of these survivors, as well as those who have passed. They fight to keep memorials standing and for fair reparations to be paid for the years of pain and suffering these women endured. And that's this week's Did You Know? So, well, you've alluded a little bit to this earlier, but um, I'm curious if you have parts of your heritage that you are really proud of. And I think you kind of alluded to that with your grandfather and all of that, but just like as an Asian American, what are the parts of your journey and your story and your heritage that you are proud of? Yeah, I really love this question and, and um, kind of what I said earlier and that my ancestral lineage has prepared me for this work that I do, even to your question of how do I um, move forward in the world with a soft heart when it's easy to be hardened. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I believe what my heritage and culture has provided me is that strength to hold all things. Now, should people of color and women of color hold all things? No, but we can, you know, and so being Mm. able to hold suffering in our bodies, um, being able to hold stories of grief um, because we know what that is like. And so I feel like even though maybe I may not have had the exact experience that one of my girls has had, I know that someone in my lineage has had that, you know, Mm. based on where we came from. And so understanding that, I think there is a connection that um, can grow from Mm. these shared stories and shared lineages and shared suffering. And that's what allows us to move forward together. I think the other thing that I really appreciate in my family system and my cultural system is the value of work ethic um, in, in working hard for what we believe in. Um, and so even though it may not be popular, especially the work that I do is not popular among the Asian American community. In fact, a lot of Asian Americans are like, huh, what are you doing? And in the very mm. beginning, my mother didn't even approve of what I was venturing mm. into because like, she's like, yeah, we paid for your education to go to film school. Uh, and right after graduation, you're not doing film. Like what, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, that was a huge, like, wow. Okay. You know, um, difficult to express and to explain, like, this is what I believe is to be true for myself. 
Mm-hmm. And it took time. And so even though it took time for that, uh, uh, I guess, uh, approval to unfold, yeah. um, that's, that work ethic was consistent in that I've always been taught, if you know what you need to do, you need to do it. And faith mm-hmm. has always been the um, back, the the foundation for that. If faith yeah. and your belief in God and your understanding of who God is is calling you into something, you must do it. You have no choice. And so I'm telling mm-hmm. them, like, I have no choice. <laughs> like, this is what I believe mm-hmm. I've been called to. And that was really difficult for them to understand because, like I said, with those generations, mm-hmm. I was the generation that was supposed to continue to uplift our family out of poverty. But yeah. instead, going back to it, I actually learned that from my grandfather who after he had uh, served as a pastor for 35 years, he actually went back to communist China to serve the Hills tribes people. And those were like the images and stories that he would send me from China. And so being like this 11 year old girl, getting these pictures from this far off land that I'd never seen before was so intriguing to me. And it was Mm. until like later on when I was older, realizing the depth of him going back and the, Mm. um, the, uh, I guess, yeah, uh, not not common <laughs> thing to do to mm-hmm. go back to the poverty from whence you came. For him to mm-hmm. do that, I think was, c- kind of gave me permission to do that as well in a different way. Yes, that totally makes sense. I just got goosebumps thinking about that because to me, there's um, there's almost a, a progression and this may not be true, but I think to move from poverty to have some kind of resourcing or decisions that are made and the hard work that's put in to actually move a family or a community out of a place where there's destitute, you know, really. Um, it's so, there's so much intentionality and so much hard work and really a, a sacrificing for the next generation, you know. But then I think about all the inventions and creativity that come out of a place of being resourced, like food. And um, I think about, like the Renaissance took place because most people at that point were fed. Like we, when people have your basic needs met, then there's just so much potential to um, build, create, invent, I mean, make better. And I think that that's this picture that, um, that, that way would make sense then to go back having our bellies full, that we would then go back and try to um, be about righting wrongs and, I just think that that's, I, I think your grandpa must be smiling <laughs> seeing what you're doing. So I love that. That's, that's really amazing. So you have started nonprofit 10 years. I mean, this is a, a labor of love um, leading in a place where there are not many Asian American women doing what you're doing. So you're really a pioneer, you know, breaking down stereotypes kind of thing. What are some leadership lessons that you have embraced, lived by, and seek to pass on? Yeah. So I have three that um, the survivors of sexual violence taught me in advocacy with them. And I feel Mm. like advocacy is leadership. Um, One of my mentors, uh, Chirpan Kampuvong, actually, she uh, she works in Laos. She's Lao-American and, and went back to Laos to work. Uh, she always taught me that uh, leadership is meant to be given away. And so <laughs> in advocacy, if we're leading, we're actually championing, championing um, the dreams of other people. Um, and so what, what survivors taught me, one, is sharing your story is the first step to healing. And I learned that through the survivors sharing their story, not realizing that that was a lesson for me too. Sharing my own story Mm -hmm. is the first step to healing. Now, again, because I haven't experienced any level of trauma like my girls have, my question was always, what is my story? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. have a story. Like, I'm just supporting you and and helping you to go to school and helping you to be the leader that you want to become and helping you Mm -hmm. do what you feel is best in, in your community. Um, but a lot of times they were challenging me with their own story. And that's actually what led to this book is because Mm. they were telling me like, Hey, you have the platforms, you're getting all these podcast interviews and stuff. How will you leverage your own story on behalf of us? And so that's where Mm. this book really came from. And so how I've seen them share their story as the first step to healing is what actually opened up this understanding of what liberation could look like, where people Mm. are sharing their stories of brokenness and despair and suffering and realizing that all of the stories lead to 
can lead to hope and love and joy, but only if we share them with each other and only if we support each other in that healing process. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why sharing the story is the first step so that everything else could evolve. All of the dreams, all of the career opportunities, all of the leadership desires that they have could stem from those stories. Mm-hmm. Without knowing the story, we won't know how we could support each other. That's good. Um, and then the second thing is... Um, They've told me that we are not victims, but survivors. Mm. And I think a lot of times, okay, especially in the international development world, we use the term victim, especially anti-trafficking world, which is another world. Um, The terminology of victim entails that they are still caught in prostitution or caught in the cycle of violence. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for us, you know, we were, I was using that terminology because that's what I've been taught, you know, before. Um, to use certain terms, but at the same time, it doesn't call them into who they could become. And so the power of language, of calling people into existence based on how what they could become, and also not labeling them based on what had happened to them in the past. So we don't say victim, we don't say orphan, we don't say prostitute, we would say a woman working in prostitution, a person mm-hmm. who had been victimized by abu- abuse, a person who had been raped, a, a child who had been orphaned. That way it, it allows their humanity to come to the forefront. So and also with the survivor language, it's um, helping them not to just see themselves as a victim, but helping to, them to see how much they have survived already by nature of being yeah. alive, by nature of being here, by nature of going to school. And that mm. image of all of them still striving to go to school, striving to live a better life, striving to pursue their academic dreams, despite what they had gone through, is what mm. proves to me that their strength is beyond is beyond, yes. beyond, beyond. And so calling them into that existence, even if they don't see it in the moment yet, is so imperative. Mm. And I see that for, for my survivors in our community. I see that for myself too. It's like, how many times have I victimized myself because mm. of the pains that I've experienced or because of the maybe mistreatment I've experienced for being an Asian American woman in this in this context of nonprofit leadership, right? If I right. only saw myself as a victim of whiteness or white supremacy, Again, I'm not. I'm also not calling myself into who I could become as a leader, and so claiming my own identity and, and calling myself into who I could be, I think is really mm-hmm. important for for leadership. Um, That's excellent. Wow. Lastly, third thing, um, you are not a voice for the voiceless. So, especially as a photographer filmmaker, this term has has yeah beat me over the head so many times and and I know going into the work I did use this term a lot because that's what I was taught in school like mm-hmm. you are telling the story because no one else will hear it otherwise um, you are telling a story for someone who can't speak for themselves and oftentimes that's because it's translated to English or because it's put <laughs> in a photograph or it's put on on the film when in reality storytelling is so inherent to African culture I'm actually Mm. learning from them how to tell stories because they know that is so embedded and they are the embodiment of stories of their ancestral lineage as well. Mm. And so because it's such a communal culture that is passed down through language and through stories, I'm learning from them in terms of how is the story told? And so I Mm. think that's what really also like shifted my perception of how to tell stories of, of suffering and trauma is um, because the way that I've been taught was more of a, okay, there's a suffering and trauma. And then, and then what happened that helps you, you know, have a better life. Right. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. that what happened is the international agency. Right. Right. became the savior. And then all of a sudden now your business is flourishing. Well, we all know (laughs) business doesn't flourish just like that. And also there's a long-term sustaining that needs to happen and long-term support and relationships that need to happen. Um, Mm. But what I've saw in community of survivors is that it is, it is a very long-term relationship to Mm. find the healing, to find the liberation. It does not come with a one-off scholarship. It does not come with a one-off loan. And even for a lot of my community members now, 10 years, we're still working at it. We're still trying to figure out how to love each other better and how to communicate with each other better and how to find the right solutions for the communities together. Mm. Um, And so realizing that it's not my voice that will be liberating for them. It is their own voice that will liberate the generations that come after them. 
and mm. seeing my role not as a voice for the voiceless, but more as a um, maybe like a megaphone, like an amplifier of their voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to see myself as um, someone whose shoulders they can stand on because I believe mm. that their vision is so beyond beyond. It's so far fetched that I will never understand what that vision looks like because the story that I've experienced is not the story that they've experienced. And so that Mm. story, that grief, that suffering, that despair is what informs their more hopeful, more liberating vision for a future that I cannot see. And so if I allow them to stand atop my shoulders so that they can direct me in what that vision Mm. is looking like, I'm like, okay, turn left or right. Okay, let's go. Like, let's go together, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then that's how we're going to move into a better world. And unless we listen to the vision of survivors of sexual violence, we will pay. We need those visions to lead us into a greater sense of liberation for our world and for ourselves. Wow, that's gold. Okay, everyone on the podcast, just rewind it again. <laughs> Listen to those words. That is powerful. And that to me is a paradigm shifter, you know, and it's so needed and so necessary. And it really, I think brings to the forefront in my mind how we are without, you know, Jack Johnson better together. We really are better together. <laughs> like, because there are there's a role that you play, but you are not the center of the universe. And all of us are all of us need each other. And like you just said, we will perish without one another. And I I think about the future and on one hand, my hope level is high, even though everything seems like it's falling apart. When I think of this next generation and I think of how yeah. connected because of the ability to connect internationally and otherwise, like our, the fact that the world is smaller because we have um, the internet even. I mean, things like that, that, you know, people have cell phones all around the world and there's, there's ability to communicate, to share ideas and perspectives and things that we're not even exposed to that others are. And together we can come up with really creative alternatives that that there's just not a cookie cutter way is what I keep coming up with. And I think this next generation understands that, that there's a lot more complexity, but we, if we can pool together, it will be better. Exactly. And this is exactly why we need more Asian American leaders, because our world is missing our perspective and our leadership in many of these spaces. Mm -hmm. And without us, the world will only remain the way it is, you know, and I think this is why... We need we need advocates, we need survivors, we need white people, yes. we need black people, yes. we need Asian people, yes. we need everyone yes. together to yes. uh, really inform what our world could look like so that all of us could be yes. liberated. Um, yes. And we're not liberated until the most oppressed are liberated. And that's why mm. in America, Black Lives Matter movement is so imperative, especially for Asians to identify with that struggle and to uh, partner in that struggle to support Black Lives Matter movement. For my context, it's survivors of sexual violence in Kenya Mm -hmm. and Zambia, partnering Mm -hmm. with the least of these, uh, what society deems the least of these, because they're the ones that will lead us into a greater sense of freedom. Mm. Wow. That is so beautiful. So necessary. Okay. So you have an opportunity to speak to Asian Americans. And when I think of our community, AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders, uh, there's a wide range, obviously, because we have so many, such a variety of Asian, you know, South Asian is different than Hmong is different than Pacific Islanders is different. So there's a, a whole range of socioeconomic, you know, generations, immigration stories, all of that. Um, but a, as a generalization, when I look across the landscape, to me, some of it because of culture, some of it because of um, being maybe in that still trying to make it category as whichever generation we're coming through, there's a there's a resistance, I think, sometimes to get involved in work that can seem more radical or, you know, just controversial or risky, you know, like Mm -hmm. we, I think probably one of the greatest values that we try to hold on to with all our being is 
security, comfort, Mm -hmm. you know, like we really want to make sure everyone's okay. You know, so even it's like the concern is, you know, get a college education so you can get a good job. So you have money so you can buy a house and, you know, just move up the 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 ladder, so to speak, the American dream, right? Which then can cause us to go, okay, well, I'll just write a check and, you know, and I'm done with it. Then I don't have to feel guilty and not actually move into being involved in a way that begins, like you've said, Nicole, like expanding our heart because we actually have faces and no real people in places that are different than the world that we currently live in. So you have an opportunity to speak to those women who are listening. What would a message be to them? Oh God, so many things. I think um, just to reiterate the leadership lesson, telling your story is the first step to healing. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Asian American women don't realize that they need healing from something or they are not allowed to recognize it. And so this is where telling your story in safe spaces, if, if the family system isn't safe, maybe it's with a therapist, maybe mm-hmm. it's with another woman of a different ethnicity, mm. um, maybe it's communing with others who don't look like you, where you might find that greater sense of healing because our culture doesn't allow it in many spaces, which I understand mm. they're not all there yet. But if we can find those safe spaces to tell our stories, within the space, safe spaces first, that's when everything else will, will emerge. That's where mm. our leadership be, will emerge. That's where like new parenting styles will emerge. Yes, that's yes. where our, I think, creativity as well can emerge from beyond the box of CEO, Asian American, you know, go up the, the, the chain, you know. Um, mm. I think we can imagine so much more for ourselves if we allow our story to speak to the healing that we need, that we desperately need. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, shift our own perspective of what we think we could do as well. Mm-hmm. I think we're also so, um, and, and I think this is a good thing. We're so uh, uh, kind of tied to our parents' affirmation of us, which is a good because, you know, getting that honor from our parents is, is everything and mm-hmm. it should be. At the same time, if that sense of honoring your parents goes against what you know your calling is to be in the world, there's there's a limiting of who Mm -hmm. you could be and who you could how you could show up in the world. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's missing is that we're allowing uh, our our parents and our in our ancestral lineage to dictate what we do forgetting that culture has evolved so much. We have Mm -hmm. evolved so much and we Mm -hmm. therefore now have a responsibility to delve into these stories of suffering so that no other person suffers the way we did generations Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. In America, Chinese Exclusion Act, um, Japanese internment camps, uh, lynchings, businesses burning, like so many things. Like we can talk about these things all day long if we forget what had happened, then mm-hmm. we will be lost. If we forget our history, we will yeah. be lost. That's what I mean by without this bigger vision, we will perish. And so this yes. is why it's imperative now, if if you are within the generation that has found a sense of security and stability and sustainability, it is your responsibility to ensure that no other person suffers the same violences that your parents and your grandparents did. Mm. And if those people don't look like you, let it be. <laughs> you know, let it be the people who don't look like you because they're going to teach you something about yourself that you never saw before because your family didn't allow you to. That's straight fire. Oh, yes. Okay, so rewind that part to you guys. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Listen to that again. Oh, I love it. Okay, Nicole, I could talk with you for hours and hours and days and days and look forward to eventually that time someday, yeah. somehow, some way. I really We will. Really- Yes, this will happen. Okay, so switching gears to a fun, a fun topic. Um, Nicole, what's your favorite Asian comfort food? <laughs> oh my god! So when I get off the plane from months in in on the field, my mom always knows we go to Dumpling Kitchen on Terravel. Siu Long Bao is my favorite oh. favorite food. When yes. I lived in LA, Din Tai Fung. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, yes. So that's, that's top, top, top for me. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you take that bite in and there's that, the juicy, the like, spoops, the soup. Oh, okay. Seriously, why do I do podcasts right around lunchtime? Like, my stomach is growling. <laughs> I'm seriously so hungry right now. And I want that now. Okay, this is so good. Oh, very, very good. I love it. Well, how can people connect with you? We will definitely connect and um, your book. We will be promoting and... Um, yeah, we'll link this all up in the show notes. But how can people connect with you? How can people connect with your organization? All of that. Yeah, so my book is available anywhere books are sold. Um, we are mostly using bookshop.org because um, they donate 10% to um, local bookstores in their area. And uh, if you use our link, they'll also donate 10% to Freely and Hope, which is the organization that I founded. So to Ooh. do that, you go to buy.liberationishere.com and that will direct you to the bookshop link. Um, you can support our organization by going to freelyandhope.org. Our organization is funded by individual donors giving between $5 to $1,000 a month. Mm. And that sustaining support is what allows our scholars to thrive. Um, we fund education, healthcare, counseling, safe housing, everything that they, that they need to reach academic success. And I think this is another thing that I want to talk about in terms of Asians. Asians are so into academia, like <laughs> love higher ed. We love higher ed. So imagine for those who do not have access to higher ed, and imagine if you did not have access to higher ed, you wouldn't be in the place that you are today, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why our parents are always about higher ed, get your master's, preferably get your doctorate, but we'll take the master's, right? Yes. So like, if we, if we can provide those same opportunities for others who don't have access, that's what, what will also uplift them out of poverty. And so imagine mm -hmm. those same res uh, resources provided to you if you now have access and privilege with that education, consider mm -hmm. giving that privilege to a survivor of sexual violence. And I guarantee you that survivor will take that education and she will run with it and multiply it beyond anything you can imagine. A lot of my survivors through their education, they start community programs that reach thousands of people. Wow. Every wow. year we reach about 10,000 people. Wow. Through the vision led by survivors. So even though you're supporting one scholar through our through our um, monthly giving program, you're actually supporting thousands because through their leadership, more liberation will emerge. So you can support us in that way by becoming a Hope Circle member and giving monthly. And then if you want to reach out to me personally, feel free to DM me on Facebook or Instagram, Nicole, N-I-K-O-L-E underscore Lim. That is fantastic. Everyone go follow go find, go support. This is so important. So thank you so much, Nicole, for taking time and sharing your heart and passion and vision. And I'm just honored to know you and just cheering you on wildly because this is such important, needed, significant, beautiful work. And that picture of liberation is I don't think I use the word enough, but as I turn it around in my mind and all of what that means, there's just this flourishing that takes place. There's a yes. an unleashing. There's just some really powerful words that come out of liberation. So I love Absolutely. that. Thank you. And thanks for providing this platform for more Asian American voices to be heard. I think it's imperative that we tell our stories in this way. And thank you for providing the platform for us to do so. Well, look forward to seeing you in real life eventually, Nicole. Thanks so much for being here. Such a powerful conversation, right? Isn't Nicole amazing? She's amazing. I loved her leadership lessons about leadership being meant to be given away. And in advocacy, we're leading when we're actually championing the dreams of other people. I love this open-handed picture that she has, this vision of leadership where we are very well aware that we can all be learning from one another. And uh, I just love the picture that she paints and that we are not a voice for the voiceless. So this week's call to action, look up Freely and Hope, check out Nicole's nonprofit organization. And if you are able to buy some of the jewelry, donate to helping these women who are survivors of sexual violence, um, 
receive the education so that they can, in turn, uh, change the world, really. And I want to encourage you to pick up uh, Nicole's book, Liberation is Here. We'll link all of this up in the show notes. Um, read, learn, make a difference, keep your heart tender, keep moving towards even the difficult and hard conversations to be learners. So have a fantastic week. We will be wrapping up season two and three next week. And our whole team is grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you for joining us this week. As always, we appreciate your feedback and invite you to subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast to help others find this show. The outstanding team that makes Some Days Here possible is composed of an incredible group of men and women. The Some Days Here logo and graphics are designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Production. The show notes and quotes are compiled by Vicki Fan. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The Did You Know section is researched and written by Elise Izumi. The creative design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantel Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to bringing you another episode of Sunday is Here next week.